Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From choosing the right college, developing a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and more. Each episode will help guide your family through the various steps of the process. Now, here is your host. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Um, If you enjoy this podcast, I would encourage you to go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. Help others see us. The more reviews we get, the more visible we are to the general public. So if you want to help out some friends, some families, people you don't know, um, go on and give us a review there. We just wrapped up a special promotion um, and we asked people to give us reviews in exchange. We were offering two hours of my time, which again, might be very exciting to you, might be less exciting to you. So we did have a lot of people enter. Thank you so much. And I'm going to be announcing the winter winner in our next segment. But before we get to that, um, ACT versus SAT. Uh, and for those of you who are going to test, and I know that this coming year, maybe many of you may not be going to test, but if you are going to test, and for those of you who are underclassmen, um, for whom testing may become a more regular part of your life again, this is a big question. Which one do you choose? Do you just go with the SAT because everyone in your school seems to take the SAT, or do you do the reverse and just go with the ACT because that's what everyone around you does? Uh, I would encourage you not to go that way, but to instead figure out which one is right for you. And joining us today um, is Megan Stubendeck, who is CEO of Arbor Bridge, also a former tutor and a curriculum leader, so really an expert on these choices. And I am going to put a small plug in for Arbor Bridge. Um, we uh, send lots of students to Arbor Bridge. They do great work with our students, and I am, in fact... Uh, a client. So my own son is working with a tutor from Arbor Bridge um, on his, he is choosing the SAT, but he did a diagnostic. So we knew which one was right. Welcome, Megan. Thanks so much, Beth. And thanks for having me. And for everyone listening out there, it's great to great to be with you today. Absolutely. Okay. So why don't we start with the basics? So there are some general differences between the two tests. Walk us through those, please. So one thing that's similar is that they both test content you know from school. And that is one thing that you're going to find on either one. All that stuff you learned in math class in ninth grade and eighth grade is going to come back and haunt you on both of these exams. But like you said, Beth, there's a little bit of a difference too. And I think the best way to think about it is both in pace and experience, kind of what is it that the the feel of the test is like. And the first thing to keep in mind is that the pace of the SAT is a bit slower, or the ACT is a little faster. So what I mean by that is that you just have more time per question on the SAT than you do for the ACT. But I do want to say, it's not to say that you're going to take the SAT and feel like you're on a spa day and everything is going to (laughs) come really really leisurely. It is still a fast-paced exam, but it's just slightly slower than the ACT would be. Got it. Yeah. And the other big difference is that experience. It's sort of the content. Like, what is it they're actually asking you to do on the test? And I think the big difference here is the SAT is all about analysis, really digging deep into a passage, reading passage, or a math question that's really wordy and sets up this convoluted experience of someone is pouring concrete in a patio and all of these things are happening. And then you have to kind of find the math inside there, where the ECT is just come in here, get right to the point. They just want to want you to read as fast as you can, regurgitate the information um, and, you know, push through all of those math equations as you're going. So those are really the two big differences for most students. 
Right. And it strikes me as you describe the differences. So I also have a stepson um, who has already graduated college. He took the ACT. My son, as I mentioned, has taken the SAT. And as you describe the differences, I would say it seems to perfectly align with their personalities. And I never really thought about it that way until I heard you just now describing it. And I thought, yeah, well, that's like absolutely Jack. And that's absolutely right. And so that's so funny um, that it did kind of line up that way. I will say it probably doesn't always line up that way. Um, but it's funny to me anyway, that it did. So that's a really great kind of overview of the general differences. Why don't we do kind of a deeper dive into each of them? Um, you have a, you presented some of this information to our whole team a few weeks ago, and we loved it so much that I said, let's do this on the podcast. But one of the things I loved was this idea that the SAT is the slow analytical test and the ACT is the accelerated content test. Um, but I just wanted to throw that out there for our listeners because I think that's really cute. But let's talk about the grammar reading um, and the differences in both in that section. So the actually, when it comes to grammar section, which is the sections of the exam on the ACT, it's called the English section. Mm -hmm. On the SAT, the grammar section is called the writing and language uh, section. So nice mouthful there. Yes. Uh, there actually isn't much of a difference between the two tests. They're pretty much the same. So for most students, they don't really need to worry about which one is going to be a better fit when it comes to that section of the test. But when it comes to reading, there is a big difference. And so for the reading section of the SAT, again, it's these really long passages where students are asked not just uh, questions at the end of the passage that just say, oh, do you remember when did the boy go to the store or when mm -hmm. did this happen? Uh, it actually asks you to make a lot of inferences about what do you think the author meant by mm -hmm. line through 16. So you really have to sit through it, think through it, um, where the ACT is just going to ask you a lot of factual recall questions, really to move you as a, at a quicker pace. And so that's the big difference in the reading. Um, I think the other big difference that people are starting to notice is when the SAT was rewritten a couple of years ago, they started to use a lot of old passages. So passages mm. from the 1700s, from 1800s, you know, stuff that you know yeah. actually sounds really different than the way we think and read and talk today. And so that can make the SAT a little bit more daunting for a student who maybe isn't used to kind of that exposure. ACT, it's all modern. It's, a it's you know, mostly passages from the last 50 or 60 years. Got it. And that is what's so tricky about that. The older passages is um, I'm a big reader. I was an English major in college and um, I try to kind of mix up how I read. Right. So I might read something that's very contemporary, then a beach read that is not require a whole lot of thinking. And then I will often read a classic. And I always am interested in how I, I need a little bit to get into the classic because the way that the writing is done, it's different. The speech patterns are different. The language is different and how it takes me a while to get into that. And you don't have a while on the SAT, right? You have a little bit longer than you do on the ACT, but you don't have a lot of time to get your head into that style of writing. So I can imagine that that would be tricky, especially for a student who's not really a reader. Yeah, absolutely. Because you only have not only just a short amount of time, but you don't have a lot of passage either. You only have a, you know, 60 lines or so 
of the passage to really kind of find the flow. And so that's actually where preparing, whether you're doing it on your own or doing it with someone like Arbor Bridge is going to help because you'll expose yourself to a lot of the types of passages mm-hmm. that come up. And we have this on our blog. You can, we have an SAT, ACT reading um, in our library uh, section where it's got links to the types of passages you're going to see. So you can at least start to get a sense of what are the themes that often show up, sort of what are the t- authors they like to source from. They kind of do use the same types of authors over and over for those older passages. And so you at least can kind of get that footing in your preparation work. So when it comes test day, you're like, oh, okay, I know this. I can, I can really get into it, get my hooks into it before I get, um, you know, lose too much time. Yeah. And, and actually, I love that idea. And I, I also like that you've mentioned your blog, because much like our blog, there's so much really good, helpful information in the blog. So while, um, you know, you may not have it in the budget to pay for working specifically with a college coach counselor or to have an Arbor Bridge tutor, we are providing free resources so that hopefully you can benefit from the work that we are doing. And, um, you know, understanding who the authors that they pull from are, maybe you can spend some time reading those passages in advance of going in so that, like me, trying to get into uh, a, a book that is written at a different, that was written at a different time, you could kind of get your head into that a little bit more quickly by being more familiar with it. So I love that idea. Definitely check out the Arbor Bridge blog. Um, all right. So what about the math section? Um, what are the big differences there? Yeah. So one thing that they have in common is that when we kind of look at the courses that students generally take um, in high school when it comes to math, it's algebra one, geometry, then algebra two, and then trig and pre-calc. That's pretty much the flow most students will take. Uh, Algebra two is really the sort of heavy hitter on both tests. It makes up about 50% or even sometimes a little bit more in the case Mm. of the SAT. It makes up 50% of the questions that you're going to see on the test. So if you have taken Algebra two or maybe you're partway through three quarters of the way through that, that, that course, it is a good time for you to take the SAT or the ACT. And so having that sort of under your belt is great. The one difference I would say in content is sort of those old classes you took the years before, algebra one and geometry, which one is the most important on the two exams? And I would say for SAT, it's actually algebra one. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason that I say that is that even though 50% of the SAT really does, or it's actually closer to 60, um, is algebra two, algebra one skills, the sort of basic math reasoning skills in algebra you learned in algebra one, mm-hmm. apply to 80% of the tests of the questions. It might be an algebra two question, but it involves some of the things you learn in algebra one. And so that algebra one foundation uh, or review, if you need a little bit of review, cause you're a little rusty it's two or three years ago, yes. uh, that's going to be really important for SAT. On the yeah. flip side, ECT, the review category that becomes really important is geometry. Mm-hmm. Um, geometry makes up a quarter of the ACT questions. And because of that, that's a pretty heavy hitter right behind. It's the the largest portion behind Algebra 2. So if it's been a long time since you, you know, memorized the volume of a right cylinder, which many people do not know it, and I will not not bore you with it here. No idea. (laughs) And most people do. They forget it. They take that geometry course and they do that, that quiz or test in January of sophomore year, and they will never touch it again except for the ACT. So um, those things will come back again to haunt you, um, that geometry course does, if you choose ACT. So just kind of knowing that those two categories of those two classes are going to come back in different ways on the two tests, I think is an important um, thing to keep in mind between uh, when you choose between the two. Yeah, and well, and also, um, if you're a student who struggled in geometry, but really the algebra, both one and two, 
really you got that a little bit more, then that might be a sign that the SAT could be better for you than the ACT. And then, of course, the reverse is true, right? If you really enjoyed geometry and thought it was good and also similarly were fine with Algebra 1 and 2, then the ACT could be a perfect fit. So I like that we're kind of talking more nuance here because what I do find is a lot of times students will do the diagnostic and it won't necessarily be clear. There won't be a clear winner. Um, there was for my son. And interestingly, there was for my, my best friend's son also did a diagnostic and there was a clear winner for him as well. But I often find that students, um, you know, they, they might do a little bit better on one than on the other, but often it comes down to how you feel about the test. You know, I enjoyed this experience a little more than that one as much as you enjoy a standardized <laughs> test ever, right? Um, but I like that the nuance here can maybe go beyond just feeling, a feeling and more into, and I know that this is a good skill set for me, and therefore this is probably the better test. Absolutely. So, all right. Science. Interesting here is science isn't really on the SAT, right? So, but there is a section on the ACT. Yeah, absolutely. And this is the one that everyone gravitates towards. It's like, oh, ACT is the one. If you are a science kid, you yes. need to take the ACT or you will be better at the ACT. That's not necessarily true. And the first thing I'll see about that is that um, the ACT section on science doesn't test science facts. It's not a physics test where you have to remember every equation in physics. And if you've never taken physics, you will fail that section. That is absolutely not what it's about. It's more of a scavenger hunt test or a data test of they ask you questions about data they give you in charts and graphs or in a, in a passage. And then you have to apply that data or just regurgitate that data and just find it from the charter graph. And so for some students, um, what I say is don't be automatically afraid of the ACT because you don't think you're a science kid. Um, if you're good at data, if you're good at graphs, it actually might be a really comfortable exam for you. It, again, Beth, this is going back to what you said, diagnostic tests are really helpful for this to really get a sense of what does this section feel like. Um, and then I will also sort of put a little, little plug in there is that SAT doesn't technically have a science section, but many of the other sections, the writing section, the math section, and the reading section actually do have charts and graphs where you are going to apply some of that very same sort of those sets of skills that mm -hmm. you would use in the ACT science. So it's not necessarily that you're going to avoid it entirely, even if you take the SAT. Got it. And, you know, I've, I've heard the science section described as, and I can't believe I just said that because if people have listened to this podcast really ever, they will know that one of my least favorite phrases in college admissions is, I've heard that <laughs> because it's almost <laughs> always followed by a complete and total falsehood or a half truth that is now making the rounds as a, as a hard fact, right? Um, but that this is that science in many ways in the science section on the ACT is, is a lot about critical reading, right? And what's your, what is your thought on that, that kind of, or describing it in that way? Yeah, it is. It is a lot about critical reading. I think the other thing is, is that it's also about test strategy. It is one of the sections where if a student doesn't really know how to tackle it because there's a lot of information mm -hmm. that students do have to sift through and only 10% of it is even tested on the questions. If you really don't know how to kind of tackle that section, it can feel overwhelming and difficult. But um, it is one section that students can move quite a bit in if they just learn how to pick and choose how they spend their time um, in that section. So I think it's, it's that sort of added skill as well. 
Got it. Okay. So yeah, I think that's a really, that's a great example, right? I had one little tidbit of information, which is valid, but then there is a much bigger picture to that science section. And interestingly enough, when I work with students and they do decide to take the ACT, often it's the science section that they are most concerned about because it's the one that they tend to do not as well on when they do the diagnostic. Um, and it is the section that I see the scores rise almost the most because, I, as you just pointed out, a lot of it is about uh, strategy. So if you are preparing for that section, it's absolutely possible to do significantly better than maybe the very first time you ever laid eyes on it. And I've seen that play out again and again with students. Absolutely. Yes. In terms of exam timing, kind of the last big thing you mentioned that, um, you know, one is cramming a little bit more, the ACT is a faster pace. What ex- what's th- what are the exact times that students should be prepared for when they are um, working through the SAT or the ACT? So now that the SAT has removed the essay part, um, if we kind of look Yay. at both the SAT and ACT, yeah, exactly. Yes, everyone. This is the greatest thing that ever happened. Yes. Uh, the SAT and ACT, if we look at both of them without essay, they're essentially the same length. SAT is three minutes and 17 seconds, and the ACT is three minutes and 10 seconds, or not 10 seconds, 10 minutes, three hours. And I wish it were three minutes. And <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, three hours and, you know, 10 to 15 extra minutes. That's really what they're going to be both um, for each exam. So it's pretty much the same in terms of overall time commitment. Uh, but one thing that you'll notice is each of the sections has it for each test. So the reading is a little bit longer reading section on the SAT than the ACT. Mm-hmm. So that might, you know, for we were talking about the field, that is one place where feel can be important, where you can kind of say like, Ooh, I didn't like sitting for 65 minutes of reading. Not many students do. Um, I prefer to do a 35 minute reading section, which is the ACT. So mm-hmm. that will be one place where um, your sort of experience of the diagnostic is going to tell you a lot. Got it. Okay. Um, any last thoughts before we, uh, before we wrap up our segment? No, I would just say, I think I, you're, you hit on the nail on the head when you said that diagnostic testing is really helpful and really powerful because you can't really know until you, you, you're in it, which, how it feels, how you're actually going to score, what those look like. We always do them for free at Arbor Bridge. You can always reach out to us and we'll do a diagnostic of each test for you um, and walk you through sort of the results and give recommendations. But, um, you know, at the, at the very core of it is it's really about finding the right fit for you uh, and you will find that right fit. Yes. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Megan. And uh, for our listeners, arborbridge.com, say you heard us on the podcast so that Megan knows that her time with us was well spent. Um, We are going to take a really quick break. And when we come back, we're announcing the winner of our podcast review contest, and we're going to be answering your questions. So don't go away. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit getintocollege.com to learn more. College admissions can be stressful. 
but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts, who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions, offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Well, you've already been here. Welcome back is what I really should have said. Uh, Here with me, as always, is my colleague, Shannon Vasconcelos. Hi, Shannon. Hi, Beth. Uh, So Shannon's a former financial aid officer at BU and Tufts. We are going to be answering your questions. But before we get to that, in the first segment, I uh, shared that we would be announcing the winner of our podcast review uh, contest As, as a reminder we encourage you to review us at Apple Podcasts. That's going to help us uh, help more people find us more easily. So if you want to help out a friend, a family member, someone that you don't know, just a random act of kindness, go leave us a, a review on Apple Podcasts and that will help us um, come up to the forefront a bit more. Um, so anyway, we, we do want to thank those of you who did enter the contest and by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Um, and sh- no surprise to anyone, the winner is in our target audience, um, and she's the mom of a rising senior and a rising freshman, so this is uh, top of mind for her, and her name is Deborah Y2K, and she left us a review on April 17th, uh, and I wanted to just quickly read her review because I loved it, and the title was Podcast That Takes You From Panicked to Prepared, like... That's awesome, Deborah, and I might want to steal that. I for know marketing. that should be our tagline. <laughs> it That's should great. be. It should <laughs> be. Um, so Deborah writes, "Very happy to have discovered getting in when she did. At first, I was a casual listener when I tuned in at the start of the pandemic with a sophomore and a seventh grader. Now I look forward to new episodes every week and feel far less overwhelmed than I did a year ago. We're well into junior year, and my son and I have been able to pace ourselves as we research schools and consider all the invaluable advice and information from." experts and speakers on the podcast. It's actually been fun to look into the buyer and seller schools and think about exciting options for schools that hadn't been on our radar previously. So Deborah, thank you for the wonderful review. Thank you for entering. Um, You need to claim your prize, which is two hours with me. And again, hopefully that's a prize. (laughs) Um, Email us, gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Again, it's gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. And just let us know that you heard your name announced and you're ready to claim your prize. And we will uh, get you all set up. So, Shannon, why don't we um, go from that to questions and all of a sudden I'm looking for my questions but I have them hold on (laughs) Um, so we did get a few from our listeners and the first one that I have for you um, asks um, next year my daughter will be attending an out-of-state college so yay congrats to your daughter decision day was on May 1 so now she's getting ready to go once she moves out and heads to college will she qualify for in-state tuition I know the answer here. You do? <laughs> yes. 
Uh, unfortunately, the answer is in all likelihood, no. Generally, when you're accepted as an out-of-state student, you remain an out-of-state student for all four years. Um, now, every state is a little bit different, so I would definitely um, advise you to go ahead and look at the residency policy for the state she'll be attending school. You should be able to find it right on the college's website um, where they will detail what is required to become an in-state student. But most of the time, they make it pretty difficult. Um, essentially, when you're accepted as an out-of-state student, the college is counting on your out-of-state tuition for all four years. So they don't make it particularly easy to gain residency. Um, normally, there's some language in the residency policy about you cannot have moved to the state um, primarily for educational purposes, which kind of by definition, when you're moving right. there to go to school, that's, uh, it's for educational purposes. There's also usually language about if the student is a minor, their residency is based upon the residency of their parents. And I, and I, I use, I think, the wrong term, minor. We're not necessarily talking about under 18, but, uh, but essentially a dependent student. Um, so there is always a way to appeal a residency decision, an appeal to gain residency. Um, normally, it entails things like making sure you've got all your paperwork in order, like uh, the student's name on a lease in, in that state, uh, driver's license in that state, registered to vote in that state, like really sort of committed to living in that state, as well as often they have to prove that they are no longer a dependent of their parent and they're really supporting themselves. So from occasionally that will work. And there are some states that make it easier than others. But most of the time you want to be prepared. If you're accepted as an out-of-state student, you need to be prepared to pay that full out-of-state tuition for all four years, unfortunately. Yeah. And I have two things about this. The first is if you wonder why that is and that seems unfair. And um, I was reading an article in the LA Times um, we taped this, this is May 5th as I'm taping this, but um, that appeared yesterday, the day before, and I believe it was UCLA last year, um, I think, and again, I don't have all my facts, one of these facts I have for sure, um, and it was either 700 or 800 they fell short of, of out-of-state enrollees in last year's class, and that equated to, and here's the number I'm positive of, $60 million loss for them. And I remember, because I just remember thinking, oh my God. How is that possible? But not getting those out-of-state students meant $60 million loss for them. So unfortunately, the way that this works is that the states are doing less and less to fund their in-state institutions uh -huh. and therefore out-of-state um, students bring more money with them. And that helps them stay afloat at the level that they have been. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention is that we have talked about this on the show uh, a number of times. And if you're curious and you'd like to go back and listen to a full-length segment on this very subject, we blog about every um, podcast that we do. So if you go to our blog and you search uh, in the blog for in-state tuition for out-of-state students or something along those lines, it should pop up, uh, A, every blog we've ever written about this, but also... Um, tell you what dates the podcast ran on. So that's sort of our secret little search engine for the podcast. Definitely. All right, Shannon, what do you have for me? We have a question from Suzanne and she asks, I'm wondering if given the tremendous increase in applications this year, do you anticipate college admissions offices 
changing their supplemental essays in order to have a more informative and efficient process next year? Should students wait to begin writing their supplemental essays rather than, rather than doing them based on the essays that were advertised in prior years, uh, even if they have not changed in a long time? Do they need to wait? Do you think colleges will be changing those? Okay, so, well, first of all, I don't think that changing supplemental essays will generally create a more efficient process. Um, I don't think supplemental essays create a more efficient process. They can certainly create a more informative process, but not an efficient one. I don't really think those two necessarily go hand in hand. Um, it is always a general rule of thumb that you should anticipate that schools will indeed change their supplemental prompts. They don't always. And as you noted, there are some schools where the supplements stay the same year over year. Um, but they all do reserve the right to change them. Uh, often schools, well, not often, but sometimes schools will say, hey, we're not changing our prompts this year. And they'll do that early. So they might make that announcement now or within the next month or two, knowing mm -hmm. that students are hoping to use the summer as a good time to get started on the applications. And by the way, I highly recommend using the summer to get started on those applications. But I do almost always have my students wait until August 1, um, when colleges usually officially announce what their supplemental questions are going to be before they start working on those. The UC system will often confirm these are going to stay the same, um, and they usually do that earlier than later. I, I haven't heard this year. That could be A, because I have forgotten to take a look, or B, because they haven't officially announced that yet. But um, they will often announce early, um, and some other schools will. You can always try calling, but they may not know. Um, so often if you call the school, they'll say, we're not sure yet. Um, we think they're going to be the same, but we're not positive. And if they think, but they're not positive, I, I would wait. You don't want to be writing essays that you don't need to write. So um, I think that's in general a good rule of thumb and nothing related to the pandemic, uh, quite honestly. All right, Shannon, let me go back to my list. And um, next question for you is, um, ah, my son is on the wait list for his first choice college. If he's accepted off of the wait list, what kind of financial aid can we expect? Good one. <laughs> I think this is another one you likely know the answer to, Beth, but I, I would say in all likelihood, not much financial aid. Um, when colleges go to pull students off of the wait list, they're looking to meet all sorts of different institutional needs. Um, and very often, students who can pay full tuition is a great big old institutional need. Um, and they are, in order to kind of fill those gaps, um, they are very often looking for what they call full pay students, students who they do not have to provide financial aid to. Um, I would say, and, and this is with rare exceptions, sometimes the very, very rich schools who can guarantee they're going to meet everybody's need, um, will sometimes do that off of the wait listed as well. Outside of the very rich schools, historically, they, I would say, it, Almost always, they were looking for full-pay students. I have seen some wacky things happen in the last admission cycle, as well as this one, uh, of, of students being pulled off waitlist with some money, as, as colleges have been 
sort of uncertain about filling their classes. Uh, I actually have seen some students be pulled off a wait list with some money, um, more so the last couple years than in the past. So it's always uh, it's in the realm of possibility. I'd say more so now that, than in the past. But as a general rule, still, I would say colleges are often looking for full pay students when pulling off of their wait list. Um, so it can be a strategy if your top priority is attending this particular school where you are on the wait list, you want to do what you need to do to get in, informing the school that you are willing to waive any consideration for financial aid is a strategy that may help your case to come off the wait list. It certainly wouldn't, wouldn't be the whole your whole case, but it could be something that works in your favor. Uh, but of course, I would say, you know, you only want to consider this if you have the means to pay for the school and are willing to do so if you are not willing to do so or you can't pay for the school out of pocket, which most people cannot pay for most schools out of pocket, don't do that. Take your chances on the wait list. If you need financial aid, you need to keep that application for financial aid in play. Right, exactly. Uh, Shannon and I are both clear here. You shouldn't be going $100,000 into debt because, or more, or $300,000 into debt, right? Just to get off the wait list at a top choice. If you listen to this podcast, you know we were we are never in favor of that. One one caveat I would add is I actually do think the UCs are not looking at ability to pay when they pull off the waitlist, and they do have quite a lot of waitlist movement. They are designed to go to their waitlist. So I know Shannon was careful to say that not everyone does it this way, and I just want to underscore that and say too that at the private schools is probably the and maybe that's not entirely true. And Chin and I welcome your thoughts yeah. on that. But I think at private schools is where um, your chances of getting off the wait list are typically better if you are full pay than um, if you need financial aid. Yeah, I would agree with that. And the, the other thing I would say specifically about the UCs, why, one reason why they don't really have to look at that feature uh, of whether you can pay or not is because um, they also do not provide much of any financial aid, uh, particularly to out-of-state students. So they're not looking to fund you, you know, regardless. Right. Right. That's a really good point. It's, you know, you're probably not getting it, period, whether you get in regular or off the wait list. And so that's an important point. All right, Shannon, we're going to stop here and take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to get back to people's questions. So don't go away. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts, who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions, offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. 
You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, welcome back, everyone. We are answering your questions. Shannon Vasconcellos, my colleague, is here, as she always is when I do this listener Q&A. Shannon, you have a question for me. Let's jump right back in. I sure do. This question asks, I know you are going to be talking about preparation for applying to a business program. How different should the preparation for an economics program be? My daughter is a competitive debater and attends a debate institute all summer. Will it hurt her that she has not had time in her schedule to do any kind of internship? Uh, so in short, my no. Econ is generally, in, you're going to find that in arts and sciences versus a special business program or a special school that is devoted just to business because econ is really more the theoretical study of business, whereas when you go to study business, it's usually much more hands-on. It's a hands-on approach. Um, in the in a business school, you might earn a Bachelor of Science in Econ versus in Arts and Sciences where you earn a Bachelor of Arts in Econ. All this to say that there is, in my mind, and certainly when I read Files at Penn where we had Wharton and the College of Arts and Sciences, a distinct difference between the two and a distinct difference between what I was looking for in the two. Um, because the business degree was just much more pre-professional, whereas econ is really more arts and sciences. So um, what I would encourage your daughter to focus on is why econ? What is it about the theoretical study of business that is appealing to her? What does she enjoy about the data and the um, just studying the, the market and those things that influence the market? So really digging into that side of things versus the you know, I really look forward to running my own business and I am excited to study marketing and all of those other things, right? So econ, more theoretical, business, more practical, more hands-on. Econs can certainly lead to a career in business. English can lead to a career in business. Really anything can, right? So when we think about and talk about what is going to be appealing for an undergraduate business major, we primarily are looking for some specific things that show that a student knows what they're getting into and has reasons as to why they're ready to start right now with the more pre-professional side of things. Um, and so for those of you who are saying, when is this segment going to run? I believe the segment already ran. Um, and so, uh, again, go to our blog and you can um, do a search for it. But really, it's within the past couple of weeks. So if you just want to look through the blogs or sorry, the podcast from the past few weeks, you'll find the segment where we talk about um, applying to school as a business major, as an undergrad. Perfect. And I can just speak as an economics major. Oh, I had no it. summer internship and I got into college. <laughs> so your daughter will be fine. Yes, absolutely. Um, you just need to be able to speak intelligently about why that major. And if she can't yet, then she could also always do undecided and then choose that major when she gets there, right? Undecided is always an option, right. um, especially if a student just hasn't had an opportunity to explore something. Like, I think I'm interested in econ, but I haven't taken courses in it yet. And so until you do... You could be undecided, then start with an econ course, say, ooh, I love this, or ooh, not so much, 
which is what happened to me freshman year when I took an econ course. (laughs) Um, And then, uh, you know, and then she can go from there. So remember that it isn't always necessary to select a major when you're applying to college. In fact, frequently it is not necessary. Um, All right. Shannon, my senior has made his college choice and we've put our deposit down, which is good because the deposit day was May 1. Um, But paying the bill is going to be a challenge. Ooh, that's tough. Is it too late to ask for more money? And by that's tough, I mean, I feel for you, not, oh, tough, too bad. (laughs) That's not at all what I mean. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I would say um, it is probably too late, but it never hurts to ask. And as I mentioned in answering a previous question, the the past um, year or so have been weird. And whereas a few years ago, once you had made a deposit, I would say there's really no point in asking for more money. You made your commitment. The school knows you are coming. You really don't have much ground to stand on in a negotiation. You, you know, you've already committed. They know you're coming. They don't have any incentive to provide any more money. I've seen some weird things happening over the past year where uh, colleges, again, nervous about their enrollment, actually have responded to um negotiation after students have deposited. So certainly there have been many families struggling economically and having second thoughts, even after putting down a deposit. So it is a real concern of colleges, what they call a phenomenon called summer melt uh, of students who've deposited who don't end up enrolling. Um, So you can certainly ask for more. Are you in as good a position as you would have been, you know, a month or two ago? No. I would not have grand expectations about being successful in a negotiation, but it never, ever hurts to ask. So if you have a real um, legitimate um, financial concern about paying for that college, you can absolutely always ask for more. There is no downside. The worst they'll say is no. So you know, why, why not ask? And certainly if you have had any kind of change in financial circumstances, if there's new information that the college does not know about your finances. Uh, again, would have been better to bring up a month or two ago uh, if you knew things then, but you know, stuff happens in the meantime. You could have been laid off yesterday uh, and you can always appeal a financial aid offer even once the school year has started um, and you experience a change in circumstances, you can appeal a financial aid offer, ask them to reconsider. Um, so I would say, You're not in a great position right now, but it is certainly worth asking. Again, the worst they'll say is no, and you never know. So I would go ahead and ask the question. Um, And I guess the the other thing to to throw out there, you mentioned that paying for college is going to be challenging for your family. And and, I don't know you know, on the spectrum of challenging where where it's falling for you, it's, you know, it's challenging for just about everybody. Um, So if it's something, you know, you can stretch, you can make it work, you'd just like a little more, you know, that's one thing. If you really are going to get yourself in a very bad financial position by attempting to pay for this college that you can't really afford, now is the time. Again, time was was a month or so ago, but it's not too late to reap think decisions at this point, if you think it's really going to put you in a bad financial position, if you really can't afford this school, certainly ask for more. But if they don't come through with more, you want to think about some other options before your student actually enrolls in the fall and things become a lot more difficult. 
right? And actually, Shannon, what I would say um, along that idea is that NACAC has a, a list of schools that are still accepting applications, many of whom will give you money because they are trying to fill their class. And there are some good schools on there. Um, they're not sellers. They're buyers. I'm sorry. Yeah, they're not sellers. They're buyers. They're buyers. Um, so if you watched my interview with Jeff Salingo about his book, um, there are schools where they will offer discounts to get you to come. Um, so maybe take a look at that. It, it's probably, you know, it'll never be fun. Your son will not be happy. He's at his first choice. But if you're going to, as a family, put yourselves in a deep financial hole that you may never dig out of, as Shannon said, please don't do that and um, take actions today rather than your son goes, he's there for a semester, you realize you can't pay. Now he's incurred debt. He's not going to have a degree from that school. He's scrambling to find a different place to go to. Yeah, There's less money once you're not in an, a freshman. Yeah. It's all bad. So please <laughs> don't do that. Um, all right, Shannon, what do you got? Okay. Uh, next question comes in from Lisa. Our high school counselor helps over 500 kids, which I think is pretty typical kind of average. Yeah. Yeah. Um, She has said if parents want to write a letter of recommendation for their students, she would use some or all of it um, because we know our kids' strengths, um, but also because she doesn't have the time to write for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, my question is, what makes the best letters of recommendation from high school counselors? Could you even read an example? Sure. Okay, I'm not going to read an example because actually um, we all read recommendation letters when we were doing admissions, but we typically don't see them now. And um, I didn't have one handy. I didn't save one from my time as an admissions officer. And now, like I said, I don't really read them. Here's what I can tell you makes the absolute best. It is not length. It is specificity. Um, Easy for me to say. (laughs) Uh, And by that, I mean, a lot of times when people are writing something in support of another person or they, they say a lot of awesome things. He's really nice. He's so genuine. He really is friendly and outgoing. He adds so much to the school environment. If you say that, all you're doing is telling me something, right? I just have to take you at your word. But if you share examples of either of those, or all of those, ideally, now I can picture it, right? So he's so nice. He is the type of kid who always says hi when I see him in the hall, whereas most of the other students just kind of walk right by me. Mm. He's so genuine. He says hi, and then sometimes he'll ask me, hey, how is your dog doing? Because he remembered that we were talking about our dogs, um, you know, a week ago, and my dog was maybe not doing so well. And so he he's genuinely interested. He followed up. Um, I'm giving examples right now of like more personal qualities, which often is kind of what you hear from the counselor. The teachers are usually the ones focusing on academics. But if you know that this student, um, you've heard from other teachers that the student is a real standout, you could share, you know, in his most recent grade report, his math teacher wrote X and you could share the actual quote from the math teacher. I see guidance counselors or school counselors, excuse me, doing that often. They'll pull quotes from um, things that teachers have said and use them to kind of bolster their recommendation letter. 
Often it's from the school counselor that you're going to hear about a student's um, activities in the school community. You might also learn if the student is smart and letting the school counselor know this, they, you might learn about the things the student does outside of the school community. So you just want to make sure that it's not too long, shouldn't be longer than a page. Three paragraphs, probably max, maybe four, if you can fit that on a page. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't need a lot of extraneous, flowery, flowery language. Yeah. Um, you know, admissions officers are reading through so many files. You want to give them the quick hits, do it succinctly, give them a couple of good examples to back up what you're saying, and then they're going to get that and then they're going to move on. So they're not going to decipher every little last word that's in this um, in this piece. So again, you want to, examples are the most important thing. You want to try to give some sense of the student's personal qualities. Um, you might also include if there's a particular subject area they really excel in, and you can provide examples of the way in which they excel in that. You might mention that. If you have some teacher quotes pulled from other places that you've received, that you could consider including that in there along with, you know, an attribution to the teacher. Those are all things that could go into a good counselor letter. Um, if for those of you who do brag sheets for your students, if you look at the questions that college school counselors ask on the brag sheets, um, those that could be a really good uh, framework for sharing information um, in, a, in a letter of support for a student. So just to follow up, because I'm seeing parents wheels turning in yes. their mind right now. This counselor has specifically asked parents to write letters. If your counselor has not asked for a letter, would it behoove parents to proactively provide one or stay away from that? (laughs) I would certainly not proactively provide one. Um, You know, the school counselor might be quite offended at the idea that you're going to just write the letter and that he or she is going to rubber stamp it or, you know, that they are going to rubber stamp it and just sign it and say, great, that's one less thing for me to do. Um, What I would encourage you to do if you're thinking, oh, I would love to provide this information to the school counselor is ask the counselor, is there, are you going to ask for a brag sheet? Is there a place for me to share information that um, might be helpful to you? Do you want that information? Or are you feeling like you already know what you're going to write and you don't need that? Um, So it never hurts to ask those questions. It would be a bad idea to assume that a counselor would want it. And it would even be, in my opinion, a bad idea to suggest that, hey, if you need me to, I can write this for you. Unless someone specifically says you could write this, I would never suggest that you would do that. So I think it's a little odd that someone would ask, but um, but hey, if they're offering, go for it. Yeah. All right, Shannon, I only, we only have about a minute for you to answer this last question. So I'm hoping, if I go to the right place, that you <laughs> can answer it quickly. Um Freshman year is going to exhaust our college savings. How can my son get scholarships for sophomore through senior year? That feels um, kind of particularly prescient on the heels of what we just talked about. Right. So uh, I would say um, if if you can, are not prepared to pay for all four years, choose another school. So I'll just <laughs> throw that out there now. It is unlikely you will receive or your son will receive significant scholarship funding that he did not receive as a freshman, that all of a sudden money will appear for a sophomore through senior year. Um, 
you know, colleges use scholarship money as an incentive to get you to enroll. Once you're there, there's very little incentive to provide additional funding. Sometimes individual departments um, do have some scholarship funding for continuing students. So I would say um, once he gets to school, check in with the financial aid office about any continuing student scholarships, check in with his major department about any um, funding that they might have, but be prepared that it will be minimal, if any. Uh, you can also do an outside scholarship search on a website like scholarships.com for continuing student scholarships. If he has a particular major or career field he's planning on, if there's a professional association, check their website. They sometimes have scholarship funding, but again, tends to be small. So yeah. you need to be prepared to pay. Absolutely. Shannon, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate it as always. You're so welcome. All right. Well, and I also want to thank Megan for joining us and talking about ACT versus SAT a little bit earlier. Uh, next week, Ian is going to be here and he's going to be talking about outside scholarship searches. Look at that. I didn't even plan that. But <laughs> if you want to learn more about that, um, before you commit to a school, please um, take a listen to next week's podcast. We're also going to be talking about starting the college application activities section. We'll be talking about the Common App section, but that's going to be applicable to really any college application that you fill out that has a section for you to list the things you're involved in. Um, we're also going to be talking about film studies. So for students who might be interested in majoring in film, please don't forget uh, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. The more we get, the easier it is for others to find us. And we want others to find us. Um, and if you have questions, you can send them to us. You can email us um, at gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. But you can also post questions on our Facebook page. You can post questions on our Instagram page. Um, you could post questions on our LinkedIn page. So there's a lot of different places where you can engage with us and ask us these questions in the hopes that Shannon and I or another one of our hosts um, will get to them. And we use those for segment ideas also. So hey, if you have one, um, please go ahead and ask it. Uh, and we just want to remind you that we're here every Thursday. For those of you who want to listen live, we're here every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific and uh, 3 p.m. Eastern. Did I get that right? 4 p.m. Eastern. 4 PM. <laughs> I did it backwards that I normally do it. So uh, thanks so much for listening. And we look forward to talking to you again next week. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.